I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Today's episode is on Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom and war. Athena is one of the most important of the Olympians. She can be viewed as Zeus's lieutenant, his trusty second-in-command. In terms of strength and power, she's even said to be Zeus's equal. I'll go into all of that today and other things as well, but first, let's start with the birth of Athena. In myths all over the world, there are plenty of examples of gods and demigods being born in strange circumstances. Things like being born from trees, or dead bodies, whatever really. One such example is Athena, who is the daughter of Zeus and his first sexual partner, Matus. In different versions, Matus is either Zeus's first wife, or first lover, or she is raped after unsuccessfully attempting to shapeshift into different animals to escape him. Regardless of the nature of their relationship, though, she does become pregnant. Hesiod gives these events right after Zeus deposed his father Kronos to become king of the universe. Once Matus is pregnant, Gaia comes to Zeus and warns him that Matus will give birth to a daughter and that this daughter will be Zeus's equal. Afterwards, Matus will then fall pregnant again, and will this time give birth to a son, Gaia tells Zeus that this son will overthrow him to become king of the universe, replacing Zeus just like how Zeus replaced Kronos, and how Kronos replaced his own father, Aranos. So, in order to prevent the prophesied birth of a son who will overthrow him, Zeus swallows the pregnant Matus. But Matus was not killed by this, though, nor was she offended. She will forever afterwards live inside Zeus and whisper her words of wisdom to him. The unborn daughter is also not killed by Zeus swallowing her mother either. That daughter is Athena, and she continues to grow inside Zeus too. Apparently, she was in him for a very long time, as after Matus, Zeus had several other lovers, and established how his universe will work, and finally marries Hera. Eventually though, Zeus gives birth to an Athena fully dressed from head to toe in armor. He gave birth to her from his forehead. Hesiod says simply that she was born from his head, but Apollodorus' library says that either Prometheus or Hephaestus provided help. One of them gave Zeus a good smack in the head with a sharp axe. Zeus's head was split open, and Athena burst forth into the world. Zeus then healed his own head. Apollodorus' library also adds details about Athena's childhood. In that account, Athena is raised by Triton, the son of Poseidon, alongside his own daughter, Pallas. Triton taught them both the arts of war, but one day, the two of them were fighting, and Pallas gained the upper hand. Zeus decided to intervene and distracted Pallas, and Athena lunged with her spear, and expecting Pallas to dodge it, accidentally ended up impaling Pallas with the spear, tragically killing her friend. The Homeric hymn to Aphrodite says that Athena has no pleasure in the deeds of golden Aphrodite, but instead delights in wars and in the works of Ares, in strifes and battles, and in preparing famous crafts. So like Artemis, Athena is one of the three virgin goddesses in Greek mythology. Artemis and Athena are the tomboys of the Greek goddesses. They both are linked closely to activities which the Greeks typically associated with men. For Artemis, it's hunting, and for Athena, it's warfare. Artemis, though, is slightly more of a alluring, although reluctant, erotic figure. There are several myths that feature human men trying to seduce Artemis or glimpse her naked. There are also giants that try and kidnap Artemis and make her their brides. These myths always end badly for the men. The Athena myths, though, are much more asexual. 
In Greek art, Athena is always shown dressed, never naked. Athena is chaste, and that's really all there is to it. Nevertheless, there is one myth involving Athena in Apollodorus' library that does go against that trend. In this story, Athena visits the smith god Hephaestus to get him to fashion her weapons. However, Hephaestus tries to pursue her, and Athena flees. Hephaestus finally manages to catch up to her, tries to grab her, and ends up getting his semen on her leg. Quite understandably disgusted, Athena takes some wool, wipes off Hephaestus' semen, and threw it on the ground. But coming in contact with the ground, Hephaestus' semen ended up impregnating the earth. And so from there, a human named Erichothonius, literally meaning earth-born, was born. Now, Athena did not leave the human there, though. She raises him herself, but decides to keep him hidden from the other gods, and hopes to make him an immortal. To do that, Athena puts the baby in a chest, and gives this chest to a woman named Pandrosis, who she forbids from opening it. But Pandrosis' sisters are curious, and they open the chest. Inside, they see the baby has a snake coiled around it, and they are either destroyed by the snake, or driven insane by an angry Athena in response. But I want you to notice the parallel here with the tradition of Pandora's box. A woman is given a box and told not to open it, but then of course does, and pays for it. It's also interesting that the name Pandrosis is even slightly similar to Pandora's. As you'll see in my future episode on the goddess Demeter, Athena does something very similar to the goddess of motherhood. She adopts a child that is not her own and tries to make him an immortal. It's interesting that it's Athena here, though, as she is a goddess of war and a virgin and not linked to any male figures, yet she still shows attributes of motherhood in this myth. The question, though, is why? I think it may have something to do with Erichothonius being the fabled first king of Athens. Athena was the patron goddess of Athens. Her temple was the most important one there, so, naturally, the patron goddess is tied up in the myth of the city's founder. Generally, it would be logical to have a founder who is the son of a goddess, but in the case of Athena, she doesn't have partners, and so she can't have sons who go on to then found cities. So instead, we have this myth where the baby is adopted by Athena, and raised by her. There is also a well-known myth that tells a story of how Athena came to be the patron goddess of Athens. As the story goes, at that time, long ago, the king of Attica, a region in central Greece, was Kekrops. Kekrops was actually the father of Pandrosis, the woman who Athena gave the infant Erichthonius to. But Kekrops was not your typical king. He was not even entirely human. He had the top half of a man, but his lower half was the tail of a snake. Kekrops is described as a son of the soil. In the episode where I talked about the origins of humans, I mentioned that the Athenians believed that they sprouted from the ground. Kekrops is another example of that. At any rate, Kekrops is the king of the area when Athena and the god Poseidon decide to have a contest over who will be the patron of the new city. The contest winner will be whoever can supply the best gift to the Athenians. Poseidon struck the ground with his trident and produced either a sea or a spring of sea water. Athena, however, planted the olive tree. Apollodorus's library in Callimachus insists that it was not Kekrops who judged them, but the twelve Olympians. They sided with Athena, saying that she had produced the best, most useful gift. Athena named the city after herself. A bit of a sore loser, Poseidon angrily flooded the area. In another example, Athena and Poseidon hold a contest over who will be the patron of the city of Trozen. Trozen is a city in southern Greece. In the case of this contest, Zeus declares that both Athena and Poseidon be the city's patrons. 
Even in the classical period of ancient Greece, coins from this city featured symbols of both Athena and Poseidon, in Athena's case an owl, and in Poseidon's case a trident, on the coins. Most of the Olympian gods were worshipped throughout ancient Greece, but certain locations boasted particularly strong cults dedicated to a particular god or goddess. In the Hera episode, I talked about Argos. With Apollo, the specific area is either Delos or Delphi. Several myths explain why different gods are so closely associated with different places. With Apollo, Delos was said to be his birthplace, hence there was a major temple there dedicated to him. With Athens, we have the myth of the contest that Athena won. Throughout Greek mythology, out of all the gods and goddesses, Athena is typically the one that comes to the aid of various human heroes. Sometimes she takes an indirect role, looking out for them generally or sending them inspiration. Sometimes, though, she takes a very active role, even fighting alongside them. Take, for example, the actions of the Greek hero Diomedes during the Trojan War as described in Homer's Iliad. The whole story of the siege of Troy is very complex. The Greek armies are attacking the city of Troy, and various Olympians, due to various reasons, have ended up siding on different sides. One of the benefactors of the Greeks is Athena. One of the gods on the side of the Trojans is the war god Ares. These two are not just watching the fight, though. At one point, they are both physically present on the battlefield. Ares stalked through the Greek armies, killing as he went. Eventually, he spies Diomedes and rushes towards him with his spear. Athena, however, intervenes. She was also present on the battlefield, but was invisible. Unable to be seen, Athena is able to push Ares' spear aside so that he misses Diomedes. Diomedes was now free to counterattack, and with Athena's added strength, he stabbed Ares in the belly, taking him temporarily out of the war. Interestingly, Athena may have a soft spot for Diomedes' family. She was also a patron for his father, a hero called Tidius. Tidius, though, is not a particularly heroic character. Like a lot of men in Greek mythology, he is basically a psychopath. In his myths, he was exiled from his home city for killing family members. Regardless, though, Athena wanted to make him an immortal. However, Tidius was also a cannibal. For Athena, this was too much, and Tidius died like a normal human. More famously, and also from the works of Homer, there is a story of how Athena helped Odysseus get back home after the Trojan War ended. And there are many others, too. Athena advised the man Argos on how to build the ship, the Argo. This was the ship that carried the Greek hero Jason and his crew of fellow heroes. Athena showed the builders how to rig the sails of the ship, allowing it to travel swiftly. Athena helped another hero, a young man named Bellerophon, to tame the winged horse Pegasus so that he could kill a fire-breathing monster. In many examples of ancient Greek art, such as on pottery, Athena is showed helping or at least watching over the hero Heracles, too. Athena also guided Perseus in his quest to kill the monster Medusa. Each of these heroes are major figures in Greek mythology, and I will dedicate episodes to each of them in a future series of episodes on the Greek heroes. But for now, note the way that Athena helps her heroes. With the Argo, she helped with its crafting. Fitting as Athena was also a goddess of crafts, including woodworking and weaving. In the case of heroes fighting monsters, Athena always provides some sort of trick or secret weapon that helps level the playing field between monster and hero. Even though she is a war goddess, Athena is very different from the war god Ares, and this reflects the ancient Greeks' view of different aspects of war. Ares was associated with the bloodthirstiness, the violence, the destruction, brute force. Athena stood more for the nobility of warfare, if you can really say there's such a thing, and strategy and clever tactics. Athena worked smart, not hard. 
and this is shown in the clever ways she helps Greek heroes. At the beginning of the pod, I mentioned that Athena is seen as Zeus's second-in-command, and in the myth about her birth, Gaia specifically says that Athena will be the equal of Zeus in strength. The best illustration of this in the myths is that Athena is said to be the bearer of something called the Aegis. What is the Aegis? It's not exactly clear. In the Iliad and Homeric poems, Zeus is said to bear the Aegis, but he lends it out, usually to Athena, but also in one case to Apollo. So in a way, the Aegis is the symbol of Zeus's royal power. It's given to Athena to show that she acts with his power, that she represents him in her own actions. In the real world, kings would sometimes give staffs or rings to particular nobles so that they could act with their authority. Think of the Aegis as being something like that. But the Aegis is not a staff or ring. Instead, it's a kind of cloak made from an animal skin. In the Iliad, the Aegis is described as having a hundred tassels of pure gold fluttering from it. Some Greek painters draw the Aegis with little snakes as tassels. And on some Greek pottery, the Aegis is drawn in a way that makes it look like it was made from snake scales. For those interested, the pod also has an Instagram page, myth.madness, and the post for this episode features images of Athena with the Aegis. You can check them out. The classical Greek playwright Euripides claimed that the Aegis was made from the skin of a gorgon, a type of monster that was half snake and half woman. This may in fact refer to something else, that the Aegis worn by Athena is often shown with the head of a gorgon named Medusa on it. The head is very ugly. A big tongue sticks out of the mouth, it has fangs or the tusks of a boar, big staring eyes, and tons of twisting snakes for hair sticking out all around it. These heads are actually common in Greek art. They're used as a kind of amulet to keep away evil. These symbols go back to the earliest days of archaic Greece, and may even go back to Minoan times, or before, the Mycenaeans. In that capacity as a protective amulet, it makes sense to have such a symbol on the Aegis, as the Aegis is a representation of Zeus's authority and protection. But sure enough, we also have a myth that explains where the Medusa head on the Aegis comes from. In classical Greece, the myths say that Medusa was one of three Gorgon monster sisters, and that they were some of the creatures born from the first few generations of gods and primordial beings. The Roman poet Ovid, however, gives a different account for Medusa. He says that she was originally a beautiful human woman, but this woman had sex or was raped by Poseidon in Athena's temple, and this greatly offended Athena, who, instead of taking her anger out on Poseidon, ended up turning Medusa into a hideous monster. Regardless of her origins, though, Medusa is eventually killed by the hero Perseus. Perseus' story deserves his own episode, but basically what you need to know now is he was tasked with killing the Gorgon Medusa looking at Medusa turned people into stone, so people wanted to get rid of her. The gods Athena and Hermes helped Perseus by giving him a mirror, a cap that provided invisibility, and a sharp sword called a harpy. Perseus is able to sneak up on Medusa and kill the monster, cutting off her head. Afterwards, Athena takes the head and puts it on the Aegis. So, Athena wears the Aegis on behalf of Zeus, and it's some kind of animal skin draped across her shoulders with a gorgon head across the front. But of course, the Aegis might actually be something else, too. In the Iliad, the Aegis is also described as making a noise like the roar of dragons. Now, I'm not sure how an animal skin is supposed to make noise. But this may in fact be a clue. Another clue comes from the word Aegis itself. No one really knows what this means, but some linguists believe the word is derived from the ancient Greek for thunderstorm, katagis. 
Consistent with that is the fact that Zeus was the original and main bearer of the Aegis, and he is the one who uses lightning as a weapon. He is the one who wields the thunderstorm. So perhaps Athena is the bearer of the Aegis, and wears it like an article of clothing, but that this item of clothing is actually a representation of thunderstorms. Pretty cool, huh? But here's an extra piece of information that might blow your mind. Let's go outside of Greek mythology for a moment and talk about the Etruscans. The Etruscans were a people indigenous to Italy, and they had several powerful kingdoms that were there before the rise of Rome. Like the Romans, they also had a close association with the ancient Greeks, who traveled widely throughout the Mediterranean. We don't know a lot about Etruscan religion because there are very few surviving written sources. What we do know is that they inherited and adopted a lot of the same mythic figures and stories into their own. There are some very interesting differences, though, one of which fits in very well into what I'm talking about now. In ancient Greece, Zeus wields the thunderbolts. They are his weapon only. But in Etruscan mythology, a couple other gods can also throw thunderbolts. And one of them, sure enough, is Minerva, the Etruscan version of Athena. Like with the other Olympians, Athena has many descriptive epithets that are used alongside her name. Three of the most common are Glaucopis, which means grey-eyed or bright-eyed, Pallas, and Tritogenia. No one really knows what Tritogenia refers to, but it could have something to do with Athena's childhood with Triton, or it could even mean she was born from water, which if true would hint at another myth where Athena is not born from Zeus's head. We also have various epithets of Athena being described as defender, or keeper of the city. There are many, many more. Another unique one is bridler, as in someone who puts a bridle on a horse. But two more common descriptors are atirioni, unwearying, and parthenos, virgin. From the last one, we get Parthenon, which is the name of the major temple to Athena on the Acropolis of Athens. This temple still stands today and this is the temple you always see in pictures of Greece today. It was constructed from 447 BC to 438 BC, and is the best example of architecture from classical Greece. The temple was built on the Acropolis, a rocky outcrop in the center of Athens where the city's citadel and palace were built. The Parthenon actually replaced an older temple to Athena on the same spot. The Parthenon contained a massive gold and ivory statue of Athena, and this statue stood 11.5 meters or 37 feet high. Unfortunately, the statue was destroyed at some point in the past, and is lost to us today. Outside of Athens, Athena also had temples in the Greek cities of Megaris, Corinth, and many, many others. Athena had her own festival celebrated every June. It featured musical contests, gymnastic competitions, horse riding, dancing, and boat races. Like every Greek god, people offered sacrifices to Athena. At special times, multiple bulls would be sacrificed to Athena. Originally, Athena was likely known as Atana Potnia, or Lady Athena, in the era of Mycenaean Greece. Similar language, possibly also referring to Athena as being a daughter of Zeus, is also seen in the Minoan Linear A language on Crete, although these texts have never properly been deciphered. So at least the name of a goddess called something like Athena is very ancient, going back to before 1450 BC. As I've already explained, starting in the archaic period of classical ancient Greece, Athena acts as the lieutenant of Zeus in Greek myth. This aspect of Athena is likely related in some way to the role of Atanapotnia in Mycenaean times. In that period, she was very much a goddess of the palace. Mycenaean society was centered around the palace. Here, Atana was worshipped as a protector of the king, 
which fits in well with the later Athena's role in being a protector of heroes and a representative of Zeus's authority. Earlier in the pod, I shared the myth of the contest between Athena and Poseidon. That myth explains that Athena named Athens after herself. In short, the name Athens comes from Athena. But it's possible that it may actually be the other way around. Some scholars today think that the goddess got her name, Athena, from the city due to certain grammatical ways of constructing the name. If this is correct, the palace goddess's name, Atanapotnia, would not mean Lady Athena, but instead mean Lady of Athens. Now, the palace goddess Atanapotnia was presumably worshipped throughout Mycenaean Greece. Some of the tablets that have her name were found on the island of Crete, after all. But in some of the major Mycenaean Greek cities, there are actually other names for very similar palace goddesses. In the city of Mycenae, there is Mycenae, probably referring to Lady of Mycenae. And in Thebes, there is Thebe, probably meaning Lady of Thebes. It's possible that what we have here are different palace goddesses that were all very similar and were gradually absorbed into the single goddess Athena. It's also possible that each of these three is actually a localized version of the same lady, a palace goddess. Personally, I think that was probably the case, that over time their unique names were dropped and they all took on the name Athena. But even in classical Greece, there were still regional cults dedicated to Athena throughout Greece, not just in Athens, but also in Sparta, Argos, on Crete, and even as far away as Rhodes. And all of these cults were pretty consistent with the larger worship of Athena across Greece. The point of this is this. The Lady Athena was never just the Lady of Athens. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please spread the word and give the pod a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite platform.